Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Today, we're talking, as you probably guessed, about the topic of prayer. We're talking on the subject of prayer. It's the beginning of a new year, so this is kind of sort of a great time for us to kind of unpack some of our most foundational beliefs as, as a church family. Like we started King's Cross Church not too long ago with, with a vision and with prayer. We started with prayer. We're sustained by prayer. And prayer, just so you know, is always going to be important to us. And so that's why I want us to sort of unpack this this, this morning. How many of you guys are familiar with the, the story, the novel, The Great Gatsby? You guys heard of it? You, you read it? Some of you are like, that's a novel? I thought that was a Leo DiCaprio movie. Um, it's both, but the book's better. Um, but uh, the story of, uh, so a, a few weeks ago, the reason I'm asking is because a few weeks ago I saw this like ironic picture that a, a friend of mine posted online of this, this Audi R- R8, which if, if you don't know, Audi R8s are really nice cars. And he really wants one, and so he saw one, and uh, he took a picture of it, and uh, I, I noticed on the license plate on the back, it was a, a customized license plate that said, Great, Great Gatsby, right? G-R-8, uh, G-S-B-Y, Great Gatsby. And so, so here's why that's funny. If you don't know, The Great Gatsby is a classic novel from the 1920s written by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and uh, it's about, the story is about this guy his name is Jay Gatsby, who's, who's known in his area for driving these really nice, fancy cars, throwing these huge, opulent parties at his big mansion, all just to impress this, like, this woman who lives across the lake from him that he just has the hots for, right? He wants to impress her, and so he's got these really nice cars. He throws these really big parties, and the story is actually a tragedy in the truest sense of the word. Like, he doesn't get the girl. He loses it all, and at the end of his life, no one shows up at his funeral. And so what's funny about that picture I saw with Great Gatsby on the back is, you know, you don't put Great Gatsby on your nice car if the whole moral of that story is that the guy with the nice car ends up with no friends in the end, right? Like, I don't think that person ever got to the end of the story. (laughs) They missed the whole point of the book. You see, in in Matthew chapter 8 through 7, Jesus is preaching an entire sermon that's really about not missing the point of the Christian life. 
It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the most famous sermon. It's the longest sermon recorded in the Bible. Probably the most famous sermon in all of human history. And it's called the Sermon on the Mount because this great crowd has been following Jesus around. And at this point in the story, he stops on the side of a mountain and he preaches a series of teachings to them on how to not miss the main points in different areas of the Christian life. And at this point that we're at in Matthew 6, the sermon actually touches on the Christian discipline of prayer. Now there's something here for all of us, for every single one of us to learn from and grow in in this passage. You see, every single one of us is coming, coming here from like different areas on the prayer spectrum, right? Like, like some of you are not Christians. You're not Christians and so you've never prayed. Maybe you don't know how to pray. And we just want to say like that's, that's totally okay. There's, there's nothing wrong with that and that's nothing to be ashamed of. We're actually glad that you're here this morning to consider this whole Jesus thing out. But some of you are, are new Christians, right? You're new Christians and you're learning for the first time how to pray. I know that like many of you in this room that I know personally are, are in that boat. You're new Christians or maybe you walked away from the church for a while and you're just now getting, getting back into it. Uh, a friend of mine who I've been talking to about Jesus for a while, uh, he uh, he didn't grow up in a Christian home. He ne- didn't know Jesus his whole life. Uh, his last couple years, I've been talking to him uh, about Jesus, and uh, he just became a Christian uh, a-, a couple weeks ago. He's been coming to our church for a little bit. He just became a Christian a couple weeks ago, and uh, I met him for-, for coffee the other day, and, and he, was- he was holding with him this, uh, this book on-, on prayer, Tim Keller's new book on prayer. And uh, I asked him about that. I was like, oh, you're reading that book. Like, that's, that's a good book. What, what, what made you pick that up? And he said, you know, I, I just want to learn how to pray. He's like, I'm a, I'm a new Christian. I've never, I've never talked to God like that before, and I, and I, and I want to know how, how to do that. And that's a good thing. That's a good desire to have as a new Christian. And some of you are Christians that you've grown up in the church. You grew up in a praying home, but, but your prayer life, you have to admit, just needs some work, right? Needs a, needs a tune-up. You need a refresher. You see, we can all grow in our prayer lives, no matter where we're at on that spectrum. And so Jesus unpacks the subject of prayer here, not not to shame us for how we're not praying well, but to serve us, to say, hey, look, here's, here's the true meaning of prayer. Here's the point of prayer that I don't want you to miss. And so Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13 is where we'll be. And I've got two main points for you this morning. First, what is the heart of prayer? And secondly, what is the how of prayer? So we're going to look at the heart of prayer and then the how of prayer. Let's look at that first one, the heart of prayer. Now, when he's explaining the true heart of prayer, Jesus gives a couple examples of what prayer is not in this passage. We see the first one beginning in verse 5 when he says, And when you pray, he's talking to his disciples, he says, When you pray, You must not pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Now, here Jesus is not slamming public prayer, all right? 
He's not slamming praying in public. He's using hyperboles here. He's using exaggeration to make a point. And we know that because he and his disciples prayed out in public all throughout the Gospels and all throughout the book of Acts as his disciples are planting churches, spreading the good news. We see recorded prayers again and again throughout the book of Acts. And so what Jesus is actually calling out here is hypocrisy. What Jesus is calling out here is the hypocrite who has more of a public prayer life than he does a private one. That's what he's pointing out. That's what he's jabbing at. The guy who has more of a public prayer life than a private one. He calls them hypocrites. You know what a hypocrite is? The Greek word literally means one who wears a mask like an actor, like a stage actor, somebody who wears a mask, somebody who hides behind a front in order to be seen as one thing when he or she is really like something else all together. It's like the politician who ends his speech with, may God bless America, right? And everybody claps, everyone appreciates, appreciates that, but like a lot of us know that, that, I mean, sometimes I do that just to gain points, right? Just to gain points, just to gain votes. He's really got no real prayer life, yet if he uses like faith-based words, then the people go nuts over him, right? They love that. Or it's like the person who grew up in a church going home and you know the things to say when you pray, but you don't have faith in the true sense of the word. There's no real belief there that Jesus is Lord over your life. You see, that is what Jesus is calling out. That's what he's exposing. That's what he's trying to pull out from under the mask. It's when you have this public prayer life, but you don't have a private one. That's why he says in verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Again, he's using hyperbole there to make a point. He's not saying you can only pray in your room. He's saying the private prayer life, or the public prayer life rather, should be what flows out of your private prayer life. You see, if you have a public prayer life, it should be because you have a vibrant private prayer life first. You see, if you have a vibrant relationship with God the Father, through God the Son and the power of God the Spirit, then your public prayer life will just be an outpouring of what you already have in private. The way you pray before others, the words that you use, the way that what people see of you, like what, what you put on display is going to be what's really there. What, you, what people see out in public is who you are in private. You see, some of you are new to the Christian life, and you might be saying, well, well I know how, I feel like I'm, I know how to pray by myself, but I just don't know how to pray in front of other people yet. Like, that kind of scares me. And Jesus would say, that's exactly where I want you to start. That's exactly what's most important. But some of you have been walking with Jesus for a while, and maybe you pray more frequently, you pray more comfortably when you're in front of people to be heard like at church or at the dinner table, at a restaurant, you feel more comfortable praying in that kind of situation than you do when, when you're alone in the quietness of your heart. 
And to you, Jesus would say, you've missed the heart of the matter. You've missed the point. You're not connected with him. Tim Keller makes note of this in, in, that, in that book on prayer that he wrote. He says, the infallible test of spiritual integrity, Jesus says, is your private prayer life. You want to know if someone has spiritual integrity? You look at their prayer life. Does it exist? Is it consistent? Do they know him? You see, Jesus, Jesus then, he, he continues in verse 7, and, and, and look what he says. He continues to expose uh, what, what true prayer is not. In verse 7, he says, When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. You see, here he's saying, look, when you do pray, when you do pray, whether in private or public, when you do pray, just be yourself. Don't, don't try to impress God with your words. Like, come to him as a child does to a father. You're not going to impress God by using a bunch of these, thous, and thys, as though the Almighty God only speaks in Shakespeare. Like, that's the kind of thing that Jesus says not to do. He says, do not heap up empty phrases. Don't dish out meaningless words just because they sound pretty. And then look what the next verse says in verse 8. He says, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Don't try to impress Him. Don't try to compel Him. He knows what you, you need. See, God doesn't need to be compelled by your fancy prayers, your fancy words, nor does He need to be informed by your prayers. But then if God already knows what we're going to pray, like if He already knows what I'm going to pray, then why do we pray at all? You ever wonder that? If God knows what I'm going to pray, then why should we pray at all? It's because we get to. We get to. It's a privilege to speak to God as a child speaks to their father. You see, that's what Jesus is getting at. He's saying if your prayer life is truly genuine, if it's truly heartfelt, then it should be primarily private. It should be void of empty religious piety, and it should be directed to God as a father who knows you. You see, that's the heart of prayer. It's not about what you say or how you say it or who's impressed by it. Prayer is about who you are. It's about your identity, who you are as a son or daughter of the living God. You see, true prayer is not the product of religious activity. It's the product of relationship, of relational adoration to the God who made us and knows us. As one writer says, to pray fundamentally is to speak to and listen to the one who calls you my beloved daughter, my beloved son, my beloved child. You see, prayer is about authentic relationship because God is a father who loves his children. And look, that concept when Jesus was teaching this was radical for his day. 
It was radical for his day because in the Jewish religion, which is most of the people that he's talking to, and in the other religions, like God was not a father. He was this impersonal, distant God, right? Like, uh, even in the Old Testament, when God is, is referred to as father, like very seldom, mostly he's Yahweh, the God who's other than us, or he's our deliverer our Redeemer, our strength, and our refuge. And here, when Jesus gets a chance to tell his disciples how to pray, he says, pray to him, pray to God, as a Father who knows you. You see, this was mind-boggling to them. This was a paradigm shift for them. It means that we're part of God's family. We're not just the recipients of salvation were adopted as his children. And understanding that is the starting point to prayer. You see, it'd be weird if I required like my three-year-old daughter to only use like fancy words and to come with a pre-made meeting agenda and required her to take minutes for all of our conversations, you know? Like that'd be weird. It's like, no, she can talk to me anytime just because I'm her daddy. She can talk to me anytime however she wants to, using whatever kind of language she wants, whether she's happy or angry or she just wants to hang, even if she's tired and she falls asleep while she's talking to me, I'm not going to get mad because I'm her daddy. And see, some of us, some of us had, didn't have good fathers. Maybe you had an awful father growing up, a father who wasn't there for you, a daddy who wasn't engaged in your life. Now, the reason that that hurt when you, when you were growing up is because there's something in us that just knows that, that a good father should be there for our children, right? See, even so, like some of us, that, that when we see that God is a father in, 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 in the scriptures, that, that brings up painful emotions and feelings for us because we, we didn't have good dads. Maybe... Maybe that's you this morning, and if that's you, we just want to say, like, look, the reason that your soul knows that is because there's something in us that tells us that a good father is there for his kids. You see, God is that good, good, good father. He's a perfect father. And the heart of prayer is not that we talk our way up to God, but that God as a father in his goodness and grace has come down to give us his ear. You see, this is what sets the Christian of faith apart from all other religions. That God can actually be known closely and intimately as a father knows a child, as a child knows a father. You see, we don't work our way up to some distant God. We talk to the God who came down near to us in Jesus. We call him father in the best sense of that word. We don't pray to an impersonal force or distance God. We pray to a father with a name, a father who is sovereign and who loves his family. Now in verse 9, Jesus transitions from telling us what not to do when we, when we pray to what we should do. He says in verse 9, pray then like this. Pray then like this. And then he gives them an example of a, of a prayer. And so that leads us to our second main point, and that's the how of prayer. 
So secondly, we're looking at the how of prayer. You see, what follows from verse 9 on is, as we said earlier, the most famous prayer in the Christian faith. Now, when Jesus says, pray like this, he's not saying, look, you got to pray this verbatim, as if these words are supposed to be repeated again and again, like some chant or mantra, right? You can, but that's not what he's, he's getting at here. The Lord's Prayer is actually a model. That's why he says, pray like this. He doesn't say, when you pray, pray these words. He says, when you pray, pray like this, in this manner. Here's a model for you. That by the power of the Spirit, we can learn from this model and we can grow in it. Martin Luther, the great reformer, he would take this prayer and twice a day he would kind of paraphrase it in his, in his own words based on whatever he was going through that day. He would go through each line and, and kind of repeat the, the basic elements of this prayer. And not say it verbatim, but he would use it as a model for his own prayer life. So let's look at the prayer line by line. He says, first, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus uses the pronoun our instead of the pronoun my. It's fascinating, right? He doesn't say, when you pray, pray, you know, my Father in heaven. He says, no, when you pray, pray our Father in heaven. Why does he do that? You see, because the Christian faith is a family faith. It's not something that you can live out in a silo or apart from the Christian community. You see, Christian, Christianity is something that you live out with a spiritual family. To be a Christian is to be welcomed into the family of God. And so that's why we pray, Our Father. One commentator points out that, you know, when you pray, Our Father, this is a way that we actually, it's another way of praying in Jesus' name. Praying in the name of Jesus. Because the only way that you can pray, Our Father, is if you're united with the Son of God in faith. Then he continues, he says, Hallowed be your name. Now, that word hallow, hallowed, is an, is an old word that no one uses anymore, right? This is uh, this, this uh, Greek word, hagiazo, which literally means to declare as holy, to set apart. And so to hallow his name is to say, Lord, let your name be holy. Let your name be held with reverence and with awe. See, we're talking here about the greatness and the majesty of God. And so when Jesus is saying, when you pray to the Father, hallowed be your name, he's saying when you pray to him, worship him. Acknowledge who he is. Know that this Father that knows you intimately is also the great and majestic God Almighty. And you need to start there. You see, it breeds humility in the one who prays. When you acknowledge the hallowedness of God, His otherness, it, it makes you humble when you pray. And so when someone tells me, you know, like, yeah, I've been praying for this thing, but like prayer didn't work, right? Bible says prayer changes things, that prayer works, but the prayer didn't work. What that, what that usually means when somebody's telling me that is, you know, like that one thing I asked for just didn't come. And usually what, what we'll have a conversation about is I'll ask them, well, did you start here? Did you start in your prayer acknowledging who God is, adoring Him for His 
greatness. Because when you start there, it creates humility in us and it actually shapes our hearts to know his will and to trust his will. Jesus continues with his model and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, imagine for a minute that you were adopted into a new family, all right? And your new father says, all right, time to take you home now. And you're like, all right, where is that? And he goes, well, we have this enormous palace in the mountains. The chair in my living room is actually a throne, and oh yeah, I'm a king. You'd be like, wow, this worked out really great for me, right? You see, God our Father is the king. He's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He rules and reigns over all nations and all time. There's no limit to his dominion. There's no limit to his kingdom. And his kingdom cannot be thwarted. That is the father that we pray to. He's also this great king. You see, this world is broken. We all know that. We all have a sense of that, right? This world is broken and it has pain and evil all throughout it. But that's why Jesus came. That's the whole point. He came to declare war against all that is evil and to fix all that is broken and to make new all that is decaying. And one day, one day he's going to crush all his enemies and his perfect kingdom will be restored. All that is true, good, and beautiful will be preserved and never decay in this kingdom. There will be peace. There will be hope. There will be love. There will be justice, love, and mercy. And our Father in heaven will be our Father with us because heaven will have come down. The lost will be found. The blind will see. The hungry will be fed. The poor will be provided for. The oppressed will be esteemed. And every unrepentant oppressor, dictator, abuser, rapist, murderer will be cast out of this kingdom and all of us will together for all eternity enjoy our Father in His glorious, awesome, majestic, perfective, and renewed kingdom for all eternity. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're saying, God, let your goodness and mercy and justice come here now. So we pray, we pray that the kingdom that will one day fully come, fully come, will begin coming now through our prayers. God, your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And see, this is as a church why we want to serve our community. This is why we plant churches. This is why we want to have a posture of hospitality. Is because we want to make, as John Calvin says, the invisible kingdom visible. Your kingdom comes, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to be praying like that. Jesus continues. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. You see... Our Father wants us to pray for even our most basic needs. Food, home, finances. 
this is hard for us, especially here in the West, because we're, we, we tend to be like self-made people, right? Like this is America, right? And we're self-made people, and so we don't really think about how we're at the most fundamental level, just dependent creatures. But look, this is why many of us have a habit in our lives, a rhythm, a liturgy in our lives of thanking God before we, we, we eat our meals, that's the reason, is because it's a reminder to us that, man, this food wouldn't be here if it weren't for God's gracious provision. There are some people who live in nations where they really do have to pray for their next meal. Like, man, I've been to a few of those countries, and, and, and man, the people that live in those countries, the believers in those countries, they know how to worship. They know how to pray because everything for them is a gift. It's a gift of grace. You know, some of us, we look at, at, at situations in, in third world countries like that, and we're like, man, like we have it so good. And there's a very real sense in which that's true. But sometimes being in wants rather than in, in plenty, having need, having wants, the way that they do can be a sweet gift because it fuels their prayer lives. And it's something that we can't take advantage of, and so we pray, or, or take uh, for granted, I should say. And so that's why we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus continues in verse 12, he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see, Jesus himself, he prayed a lot. Uh, he prayed a lot, but confession is one prayer that he never had to pray because he was perfect, holy, and without sin. But here, he reminds us in giving this model for prayer, he reminds us that all sins, which is the bad things that we do and also the good things that we fail to do, all our sins are spiritual debts against God. You see, when you start your prayer on the holiness of God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, then you'll just naturally eventually get to the place where you realize how much you need his grace. That's why our prayer of confession comes after our call to worship, where we've read a verse about how great God is and why he's worthy of worship. And after we've sung a song or two about about how great and awesome this God is. It's after we do that that we, we have our prayer of confession because it's after we meet with a God like that. After we consider his character and greatness, you realize, man, I'm in need of grace before this great and holy God. Make sense? You see, but Jesus here, he's our redeemer. He's our savior. And through him, our spiritual debt is paid in full. And so through him, we have forgiveness for our past, our present, and our future sins. And we don't have to confess to a priest. We don't have to pay our balance in purgatory. Like we don't have to make it up by doing a lot of good work. We just receive it by grace as a gift. And so we can pray to our Father through Jesus, God, forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors, as we've forgiven those who sin against us. And he prays that last part because, you know, Jesus forgives our sin, and so now we extend grace to others and forgive them. That's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? 
That's why we need to pray for it. We need God's help for that. But that, look, forgiving someone for their sins doesn't mean that we're, you, you have to be a pushover, right? You're not excusing their sin. But what you are doing is that you're letting go of all spite and all bitterness because you know that you yourself have been forgiven. Lastly, verse 13, Jesus prays for our spiritual protection. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But the Christian life is a transformed life. You see, many of us who know Jesus, we know that before we met Jesus, temptation and evil used to be the things that we run to. Now, because of Jesus, we're free to run from them. It doesn't mean that you won't be tempted, but here the, 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 the prayer is, don't lead us into that. Deliver us from evil. You see, if you belong to Jesus, then repentance, which is owning your own sin and turning from it, should be a big part of your life. Like if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus this morning, then repentance should be a big part of your life. Jesus says we can pray for God's help in fighting sin. Some of you might say, like, man, it's, it's, that's hard to do, though. That's the point. That's why we need to pray. That's why we ask for God's help. Jesus is saying that we can pray for God's help in fighting sin. Kind of like a small child who can only navigate through Disneyland and not get lost by holding her daddy's hand. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, in a few moments, the last song that we're going to sing this morning in worship together is called Grace Alone. Grace Alone, it's uh, written by a friend of some of us, Dustin Kanzaru, and in this song, this song, he reminds us that everything in the Christian life, everything that the Christian has, both in life and in death, is all by grace and by grace alone. Grace from the Father, grace from the Son, grace from the Spirit, from beginning of our Christian life, from the beginning of our Christian life, you're being protected and led by the grace of God's hand. You see, the last lines from that song that we're going to sing, I'm going to read them to you now. He says, So I'll stand in faith by grace and grace alone. I will run the race by grace and grace alone. I will slay my sin by grace and grace alone. And I will persevere. I will reach the end by grace and grace alone. You see, this is why we pray. That is why we pray. It's because we need the grace of God at work in our lives. We can't do it on our own. From our faith to our running the race, to our perseverance, to fighting sin, to reaching the end, it's all by grace. This prayer from Jesus that we just read in Matthew 6 is good news for us. It's good news for us because it reminds us that our God is a Father who, who listens. He listens and He cares. He's gracious. And He just wants to be with us. You see, the Lord's Prayer, which is kind of the nickname for this prayer in Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer is for the Lord's people. If you know Jesus, then you can pray a prayer like this because you've been forgiven. 
because you've been given much and you're a citizen now of His kingdom. See, we miss the heart of prayer when we make the foundation of our prayer our technique or our words or when it's focused on ourselves and what we want to get or who we're trying to impress. But this prayer, this prayer that Jesus gives us is a prayer that is not about us, but all about God. It's a prayer that is all about getting to know God, enjoying His grace, and trusting in His power and care. And this is all possible because of Jesus. You see, Jesus prayed this prayer. He didn't just give it to us as a model, but He prayed this prayer as a model right before He died on the cross for our sins. We read about it in Luke 22. When Jesus is about to get arrested and crucified, He prayed to God and said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How is it that we can have the privilege of praying to the Almighty God and have those prayers heard by Him as a child? How is it, that, how is it possible for cosmic rebels like, like you and like me to speak to the King that we sinned against and call Him our Father? It's because of Jesus' prayer like this. It's because Jesus laid down His life. He surrendered His life to this prayer. Your will be done, Father. Your kingdom come. Jesus is called the Lion and the Lamb in Scripture. He's called the Lion because He's the King who reigns with all authority and all dominion. His voice shakes the heavens and the earth. It's the voice that has the authority to give instruction and say things like, pray like this. But He's also, He's also the spotless Lamb who prayed this prayer Himself before He laid down His own life on a cross in our place for our sins so that we could have forgiveness of sins and be delivered from death, so that we can be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, so that we can be adopted into the eternal family of God and pray together, our Father, holy is your name. And because of Jesus, we can be assured that God hears our prayers. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.